to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by John Thornton, who is a technical speaker, software developer, open source contributor, and is currently an engineering manager at Squarespace. John Thornton, welcome to Maintainable. Thanks for having me, Robbie. So let's jump headfirst into things. Given your experience in the software industry, what do you believe are a few common traits that a software code base is being well-maintained? Well, I think one that almost everybody's going to agree on is good abstractions. You'll be hard-pressed to find a software engineer who doesn't like good abstractions. But something that I, I find myself drawn more towards with maintainable software that I don't hear other people talking about is obviousness, sometimes even at the expense of efficiency. You know, so so building things in a way that maybe isn't the driest code, but when you're you're actually sitting there and reading it for the first time, it's very, very obvious what that code is doing. Interesting. And so touching on the first part of your response there on good abstraction, can you give me a kind of a tangible example for those that might not be terribly familiar with what you might mean by that? Yeah, my idea of a good abstraction is something that hides the complexity of what is underneath that abstraction, which means that you want to expose the things that are necessary for communicating for with whatever is underneath that abstraction, but you don't want any unnecessary implementation details to, to leak out. So it's kind of trying to find the sweet spot between having uh, the right interface that allows you to communicate everything that you need to communicate but not having any other extra stuff in there. Interesting. So like if you're integrating with an API or something, maybe are you thinking like on a tangible level here, kind of are you thinking just having kind of like a really simple interface for how your how your app might interact with that library without needing to understand all the the nuances of that specific API in your code or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's a saying that I heard somewhere along in my career about interfaces should be stingy with what they promise, but generous with what they accept. You know, so when you're designing an interface, don't add things to it that you don't actually need because down the line, somebody might end up using those extra things and that's going to reduce your ability to change that interface later. Interesting. All right, thanks. How do you define technical debt? That's a good question. Considering I uh, I recently published something on good technical debt, I'd say... I personally define technical debt as any work that I expect to need to do in the future on my software project. And sometimes that can be a good thing, and sometimes that can be a bad thing. When would be a good time? Technical debt would be a good thing if I was able to get something of value for my project before I did all of the work to to get that thing. So an example of that could be If there's a part of my project that I want to validate that I've built this part correctly, if I can somehow use technical debt to go and put my software into use and get that validation, that's valuable to me. And I can use that knowledge to help me decide how to build the rest of the project. Yeah, I read your article, you know, that's on the Squarespace engineering blog called Three Kinds of Good Tech Debt. You know, you kind of touched on a few things that resonated with me because I definitely know that we've, the projects that I've worked on over the years too, we need to sometimes, I don't know if it's a compromise or it's just more in the 
given the amount of time available. And, but I also think there is that other aspect of like, we don't know how this is going to play out yet and how might people use this? Will they even use it at all? And, you know, like, I'm not going to spoil all three of the good times of tech debt so that you can kind of touch on that a little bit. But one of them was hard coding things. And I think there's some good arguments for when that's appropriate. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. On a project I worked on at Squarespace recently, uh, we needed the ability to basically have an access control list. That list would be a list of user IDs. And first, we weren't sure how frequently we were going to need to update this list. So what we did is we just hard-coded it, and that allowed us to, when I say hard-coded, I mean we had just like a hard-coded list of IDs in our code base. And that allowed us to avoid building all of the the CRUD endpoints to modify that list. Uh, We didn't need a database collection to store it. We didn't need UI for people to interact with it. And that allowed us to like ship our feature and get it out in the world and then just kind of let reality tell us how frequently we're going to be updating that access control list. It's interesting. I know that there's, I don't know if you've worked in the client services industry at all, but you know, as a consultant, sometimes we're working on projects where, you know, we get clients who are like, I want to be able to edit anything on my, in my web app, you know? And it's like, well, <laughs> that sounds great, but there is a cost to building the functionality to edit every little bit of information on your website. And we can hard code some aspects to it so that let's see if you actually do need us to make those kind of changes enough that it's there's a cost to software developer time to go through and make some, it's even at a basic level, some copy edits, let alone some like hard-coded email addresses or some other things in your code base there. But quite often, it's been my experience that rarely do those things ever needing to be really edited frequently enough anyways that you need to build out all those features at some point, at least early on in the project, those first few years or so. What other types of examples of good tech debt have you experienced? Uh, Another big one that might teams at Squarespace have made use of is something that I call scaffolding, where there's some component for your project that you know you're going to need, and that component is non-trivial to build, but maybe now is not the right time to build that component, and instead you build a really cheap, hacky version of it as scaffolding, basically like a stand-in for that thing, in a way that allows you to keep making progress on the rest of your project. I think the other topic you touched on was edge cases. Yeah, this sort of gets into a blurry line between technical debt and bugs. I kind of have the opinion that bugs are just technical debt that your users can see. But the example I gave in the the post was around race conditions with enforcing a limit of 10 items for some feature in the product. We were thinking about it, and we realized that it's not the end of the world if somebody creates 11 items. And so we realized it just wasn't worth the effort to fix the race condition around that. So I guess this sort of gets into what is debt versus what is just kind of leaving a bug around. But at the end of the day, it's about directing your efforts towards the stuff that needs to be perfect and not spending time on the stuff that doesn't need to be perfect. What do you believe developers often get wrong when they're discussing technical debt amongst themselves? I've heard many engineers talk about technical debt as just about anything in their code base that they don't like. But what I think they can do to improve that is rather than thinking about the the things that are bad, um, the things they don't like, thinking about it more in terms of the way you want it to be, you know, and thinking about like, okay, sure, this code's a mess, but what would you want in its place? And kind of viewing it more through the situation that you want to have 
when the tech debt is resolved and not just thinking about, oh, make that bad code I don't like go away. That's some good advice there for developers. Just, you know, what what is the alternative here? Or how would we do this knowing what we know today? So you have your team. How do you kind of help them kind of navigate through that process? Or how does your team, maybe a better question is like when things like that pop up, do you have like a process for how your team kind of decides to decide on whether or not you're going to deal with that? You kind of touched on a little bit about talking about how you might first respond to that, but how does your team kind of navigate beyond that initial step? It's pretty situational. And usually it comes down to how much work do we think is going to be involved in whatever initiative we're talking about. And if it's something that somebody just wants to spend, you know, an engineer wants to spend an afternoon exploring a different solution to something, that's great. It's really when we're talking about something that would be like a week or, you know, a couple sprints worth of work, then we're going to want to do kind of a deeper analysis to decide whether it's worth doing this thing. And usually my role in that is just asking questions, you know, asking, is this change going to reduce the amount of operational overhead that the the team needs to take care of? Is it going to have some quantified improvement to our reliability? You know, are there going to be additional capabilities that we have after some, you know, refactoring or migration projects done? That's interesting. Do you have kind of like a general guideline of when you think it's okay for people on your team to how much time they can spend without, say, getting, for lack of a better term, permission to kind of go down that path? Uh, Yeah, the teams that I've worked with have ended up coming up with this concept that we call tech debt day. It's just one day designated out of each two-week sprint, so it works out to about 10% of time, where engineers on the team are free to work on basically whatever they want. But with the encouragement from the team that this is this is our time to fix the things that bother us, it's sort of a hack to get out of the challenge of trying to prioritize. You know, it's it's like, how do you prioritize work to make your unit tests run 20% faster versus delivering new features to users? And by just kind of carving off 10% of the sprint, that allows us to sidestep that prioritization problem. And it sort of lets the engineers control which which things get fixed. And do they typically do that on the same day? Yeah, yeah. So the the team all agrees that everybody's going to work on tech debt on the same day. You know, we still have a stand-up. People are still trying to coordinate so that they're not both solving the same problem or stepping on each other's toes. Yeah, I've heard people talk about different uh, percentages of time they use for working on new stuff, bug fixes, and let's say addressing refactoring type tasks or you know, optimizing things in the code base. Do you see things like performance improvements fall under the same type of category as technical debt? Or is that something separate as like a new enhancement for the application? Yeah, I, I take the view that performance is a feature. If there's a product manager on the team, I'm going to be looking to that person to have some input into how we prioritize performance against the rest of the work. That's interesting. And what types of projects are you leading at Squarespace? I joined Squarespace to work on this project called Email Campaigns, which is Squarespace's email marketing platform. Since then, I've I've also been working with a couple additional teams that do things like website analytics or managing our customers' customers. Interesting. It's been my understanding, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but you know, with the email campaigns, that was a, a new big initiative, right? And so is Squarespace 
a collection of a bunch of microservices or is that kind of, you know, I don't, I don't know how much you're able to reveal behind the, the scenes there, or is that kind of historically been more of like a monolith application? How does, how did this kind of play into that? It's both. Ah. <laughs> so like many successful businesses, Squarespace has a monolith and uh, it is the thing that makes a lot of money. But we've also long ago recognized that there are there are some drawbacks to having a monolith. And the big one that, that we've been battling for a couple of years is when you have a monolith, all that code is going out on one continuous integration pipeline. And if anything happens to the master build there, work for a lot of engineers is going to get blocked from going out to release. And so that's been one of the big motivators for us to start decomposing our monolith and, and building things outside of it. And so when I started working on email campaigns at Squarespace, pretty early on, we made the decision that this was going to be built alongside the monolith. And the architecture we ended up with, I wouldn't call it microservice-based. Actually, I'd say that we, we built another monolith alongside the existing monolith. But what's different about it is there were certain horizontal concerns that were pulled out. So things like authentication, from day one with the, the email campaigns product, authentication depended on a shared service instead of being like baked into one code base. You know, and it was kind of charting a middle path between having everything perfectly separated into microservices and having everything as one big ball of mud. The areas of the product or the project that were the most well understood were the things that got pulled out into microservices and the places where we were still figuring out if we were building the right thing or not, that ended up in the the more monolithic code base. You know, I think those are some good tangible examples of how you're when it might make sense to break something out if you you have a pretty clear idea of how that would work. I mean, you touched on like things like authentication. So is that assuming that you have the existing larger monolith and you have this new one where you kind of tapping into did the uh, the larger monolith provide? the authentication that you could tap into it or, or did you need to kind of separate that out into a microservice of some sort or some other, say, micro monolith, if for lack of a better phrase? Yeah, at, at first it did provide the authentication via an endpoint. And then behind the scenes, behind that interface, uh, a team worked to pull all of the logic and session management out of the, the monolith. And eventually... The Java framework that we build all of our backend services out of, that is maintained by yet another infrastructure team at Squarespace. And they made an update to that framework that pointed it at the microservice version of authentication. And so the, the work that had to be done by my team, which was kind of focused on like the user experience and the product, was actually fairly minimal for this authentication piece. So is it safe to assume that that's kind of using like an OAuth pattern there between those different applications? It's similar to OAuth, but because it's it's all internal and we're the ones who control the login credentials, it's OAuth-like, but it's not exactly OAuth. All right. Is it safe to assume that these different monolith apps have their own databases that they interact with, or are there any behind-the-scenes database sharing? No, these, these applications do have their own separate databases. Services sharing databases is one place where I, I do sometimes get a little dogmatic because... I have seen in the past situations where engineers will, when decomposing a monolith, pull out the, the business logic into a separate service, but they won't move the data. And then you end up with two services talking to the same database. And that database ends up becoming a, an informal communication mechanism between the services. 
Yeah, it can, it can get messy. My company, we work on other companies' uh, projects as a consultancy, and we'll find scenarios where they'll have like three apps all connected to the same database, for example. And then there's this challenge of like, well, we have to run our database migrations in this application. So if you're making a new feature in one piece, in one of the applications, like what's the process for making sure that the database is getting updated and like which app kind of oversees it. And at that point, it's weirdly decoupled and it's really complicated from like a deployment perspective even and just figuring out like, well, what version of the database are you working on? And it just seems like a, a big mess there. But I understand how people kind of get into that path, but especially when it's like a smaller team too, where they're the ones having to jump around. And I feel like they can understand that, but as your team scales, having to have everybody understand that complexity around managing it just seems like kind of a nightmare. Right, like the the level of coordination you need to to operate that. You, you basically have a distributed monolith at that point. You know, I sort of noticed that we seem to have a problem with this at Squarespace where moving the data generally is a bit harder than moving the business logic. And what we've started doing to combat that actually is that we will we'll migrate our data to a new database before we've moved the business logic out into a separate service. And um, we found it's actually a little bit easier to do that data migration while all of the code is in one place. And then when you're ready to fully separate things out into a new service, you just move the business logic and the data is already in its own data store. I'm curious if there, I wasn't intending to go down a kind of a, the rabbit hole of databases and such, but another constraint that I've seen, and this may or may not be something that your team needed to deal with, but sometimes there might be departments that are kind of dealing with reporting or analytics on an existing data set. And then when the conversation comes up, like we're going to split this data out into different systems or like, well, how am I going to get my data from my own lens on this data? Does that sort of thing come up there or is that you've been able to kind of steer away from that? We're lucky in that we we've have some pretty good data warehouse tooling. And so all of the reports that the, the business is operating on come out of this data warehouse. And if we're making an update to a product application database, the worst thing we can do is break the ETLs that populate the data warehouse. But if we do that, the ETLs are going to throw all kinds of errors, and it's going to be really obvious that we broke something. And the data warehouse is, I'd say that's a must-have if you're going to have microservice architecture with data in separate data stores, you need some central place where you can tie all of that stuff back together and and do joins, you know, across your data that's in different services. So I'd, I'd like to, if you're open to it as an, an engineering manager, maybe talk about team dynamics a bit with you. Do you believe there's a strong correlation between healthy code and healthy teams? Oh, absolutely. I think if a team has good discipline practices in, in one area, that's generally going to have a halo effect or some bleed over into other things the team does. And what are a few common traits of what you would consider a healthy team? A big one for me is the team knowing what its software is doing in production. And for me, that's that's taken the form of understanding what sorts of exceptions are being thrown by the code or knowing if there is a burst of 400 errors when maybe that isn't expected. And basically being able to know if there's a problem with your software before your users know about it. Because really, for me, the the worst thing is finding out that there's something wrong with our software and finding that out from a user. What sort of uh, tools or processes do you put in place to help bring those to light? Logs and metrics are kind of like hammers for this problem. 
And at Squarespace, we use the Elk stack, Elasticsearch and Kibana for our logging and Prometheus and Grafana for our metrics. You know, we'll use metrics for anything that is very quantifiable or, or rate-based, anything that we need very, like, highly responsive alerting. You know, if, if something breaks and we need to know about it within 60 seconds, we want to use metrics for that. And we'll use logs for both capturing the details of specific errors, but also for kind of a catch-all. We have our logging set up on my team to send an alert to our team Slack channel if there are any exceptions of any type in you know some five-minute window. If we get 10 of those exceptions, the team's going to get a Slack message and know to investigate that. And that's been great for catching things that we didn't know to put metrics in for ahead of time. Yeah, those are some good suggestions there. I hadn't heard the, the term elk stack before, so that was Elasticsearch and... Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana is what that acronym stands for. I'll include some links to that. Excellent. And, you know, I was curious, you know, you, you touched on like logging, and, you know, I think kind of plays into a term that I've heard and had a couple of guests speak about and like observability. How has that changed as a team looking at how to re- like reproduce those errors yourself? You know, I guess the way it's changed how our team works is that we've actually become a little bit more comfortable operating without perfect test coverage in that we obviously do have a test suite. Otherwise, we'd be shipping regressions every five minutes. But we also didn't want to build, you know, a test suite that tested literally every single thing because it would take forever to run that test suite. And, you know, our deploy process would take hours. So to find kind of a middle ground there, we we have a test suite that tests all of the major functionality in our app, but we rely on our observability to tell us about all the other things that maybe we don't have test coverage for. You know, so if there is a non-essential part of the UI that we ship a change for and it starts producing a JavaScript error, we have some software called Sentry that captures all of our front-end errors um, and will tell us. And that way we can strike the right balance between shipping new features quickly, but still providing a, a reliable experience for our users. Thanks. You, know, you touched on like things related to like bugs or regression, things that are popping up, and you were very conscientious about how long the deploy process might take when you're, you know, due to you know continuous integration and, and like that being maybe a reason to not you say have perfect test coverage. Do you aim for something specific in the test coverage, like at a percentage level, or is it more of just identifying are our core components in the application being tested and feeling good enough with that? It's more the latter. And I'd say the signal that I really pay attention to is what are what are the number of bugs or regressions that are users are reporting to us. If users are reporting bugs and we're not catching them before the the users tell us, that's a sign that we either need to make improvements to our observability or we need to add test coverage if the observability isn't accomplishing the goals for us. We'll be back with our interview with John in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in our industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. Or if you just want to say hello and ask me a question, you can reach me there as well. And now, back to our interview with John Thornton. 
Does your team track any other sort of metrics on a higher level in terms of code quality or however you might be looking at something like that or how quickly you're shipping, velocity, things of that nature that you're able to share with other stakeholders to kind of get a sense of how your team is overall working together? Yeah, we're we're definitely, like I said, paying a lot of attention to uh, our build and deploy times. We're also keeping an eye on how frequently we deploy our code. If we've gone more than two days without a release, that's very unusual. Uh, we, we usually operate as a continuous deployment. And so the number of deploys is another sign of, of the team's health. I've already talked a bunch about bugs and regressions. That's, that's another thing we'll pay attention to. And then beyond that, I think the, the other thing I look at is, is the team shipping things when the team expects to ship things? Which I don't mean to say is, is the team hitting deadlines because I do think there's a difference between a deadline and a, estimated delivery date that comes from a, an engineer. And really the, the thing I'm concerned about or the thing I'm paying attention to is are we expecting something to happen and are we in the right ballpark when that thing actually happens or are we like wildly wrong with all of our predictions? What does the prediction process look like? Are you using like story points? Yeah, we'll use story points for, for estimating, you know, on a sprint by sprint basis. And there's a nice feedback loop there where at the end of the sprint, we'll close out the sprint and we'll look at, okay, did we get done all of the things we expected to, which things did not get done? And then we'll, we'll talk about why our expectations for those things turned out to be incorrect. And that's usually how the conversation goes. We're not talking about why did this thing take longer? Uh, we're, we're talking about why was our expectation wrong? So it ends up being more of a retrospective process on how we estimated that thing than like the actual work of building it. Funnily enough, I was reading an article this morning by his name's Ron Jeffries, who might be the person that first coined the term story points and him saying that he felt like it was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> that he it was even a thing that kind of became what it has been. It was an interesting article. I have to I can't remember the title was at the top of the moment, but it's always interesting how teams spend, I feel like there's a lot of conversations about how did we screw this up, like from an estimating perspective. And, and I sometimes am curious about how that might demoralize teams indirectly when it was just like, well, we didn't know what everything we do now, right? So I've seen developers be very self-critical of themselves because of it. Humans are very bad at predicting the future, and that's normal. That's <laughs> true. So a couple of other things. As someone that is overseeing a team and, and hiring, what sort of things have you been able to put in place or seen work well for smoothing out the onboarding process for, say, a new person to your team, whether or not they switched from a different department in your organization or you hired them off the street or something? Onboarding has been fantastic for helping my team publish up documentation. There was a period of time when we were really ramping up the project and we were onboarding like one person a month for like six months in a row or something. You know, before that person would, would arrive, we would put some effort into the documentation. But honestly, most of the improvements to the documentation happened when this new hire was going around talking to people, learning things, and they were discovering all of the gaps in our documentation. So job number one for, for a new member of the team is learn stuff and then document it. So it's it's sort of been 
onboarding got good because all of the previous people who were onboarded did a good job of documenting all of their trials and tribulations. And is that something you make very clear that's an expectation of them? Or is that something you find is like just a kind of a happy accidental byproduct of like having one or two people that were really thoughtful about that part of the process? No, it's it's definitely part of the expectations. Every new hire on one of my teams will get a welcome letter that explains what the expectations are for their first two weeks. Because, you know, starting a new job is very stressful. You're in a new environment. You're with all these people who don't know you. You're kind of trying to prove yourself, you know, and some people can react to that by getting really stressed out or like working really hard to prove themselves when really that's not what's needed or what's good for the team. So we we set the expectations right away that your first week, it's really just about getting your team's project to run on your laptop. And in the process of doing that, you're going to run into a bunch of headaches probably because dev environments, I have never worked anywhere that dev environments were perfect. And, you know, the expectation for week number two for a new hire or someone new on the team is just deploy code to production. It doesn't have to be a complicated change. And again, in in the process of doing that, they're probably going to discover some things that need better documentation. And so by keeping the expectations low for the things that the, the person is going to code up or ship, that leaves a lot of time and space to, to work on the documentation. Nice. I know there's a, some similar conversations I've had with a few people and something that even my own team has started to do is thinking about that, you know, if you're, especially if you're bringing on, say, more junior people at times, just like, how are you going to make that process as smooth as possible? Because I don't, I don't remember what it's like to be that new person on a job. It's been almost 20 years since I last started somewhere, you know, and, you know, you want to be able to like early on provide as a manager to make sure that people are feeling like they get a sense of that they're able to start contributing in something because, you know, they might be feeling like, do I belong here? Is this going to be the right fit for me? There's, you know, all these things still to figure out. Yeah, you got the job, but all right, now I have to prove that I know what I said I know. And they don't know what they don't know yet. And we don't know what they don't know. There's the, I, th- I think it's great that having the idea of helping them contribute to documentation, it's an easy way to start contributing, whether that's your documentation is in like a wiki or Confluence or, or if that's even like readme files or what have you, or the setup process. One thing that we've started to do at my company was before we bring someone in, we'll ask someone that's been on the team for a while to delete the project from their computer and have to go through the setup process themselves. And if that request is met with a lot of anxiety, I feel like that says something about like, okay, it's been like a year or two since someone's had to do this that knew how to do it. And so how do we speed up that process by, okay, like go through it and like, no, no, like literally go through each step. Don't skip things using any knowledge that you might have because you just happen to know the project so well, but like literally go through it and time yourself to see how long it's going to take. And then use that as a metric that we, maybe we can track, like how long does it take to on-ramp someone to a project? So, cause I've heard people say that, you know, I'll be at a job for a couple of weeks before I really can start contributing because the app's not running. And that's just like, they're floundering in the, you know, in their terminal trying to figure out why libraries aren't working or something or hit some weird dependency, or they have a brand new laptop, which has a different operating system than what their team has. They haven't updated yet. And then it just kind of forces us to like fix that issue. But anyway, that's been something that we've been trying to figure out how to incorporate as well. Touching quickly back on the technical debt topic we were from earlier, you know, you were talking about good versus bad technical debt. And if people have the, say the, the freedom on their tech debt day to pick and choose, you know, you, you mentioned that's something that's in the standup. Are there things that get identified people like, ah, oh, this area of the code base is really 
rubbing me the wrong way and I'd like to improve it, but they're not able to sort it out in that one day. Or it's decided, you know, we're just going to live with that as a team. But then like six months later, someone brings it up again. Or is there something like a way you keep a list of things that you've decided you're going to live with for a while? Or does that end up like in a ticket somewhere? Or how, how does that tangibly work? We use the sprint retrospectives uh, to surface some of this, because if there's a part of the code base that people don't like working with, if it keeps coming up sprint after sprint in the retrospectives, that's a sign that we're continuing to do work in this area of the code base that people don't like working in. If it was like there was some code that people don't like and, you know, we made a change there once, but we actually weren't going to look at that code again for 12 months, it's probably okay to leave it there. But if if it's coming up again and again, that's that's a sign that something needs to be done. Plenty of tech problems that that can't be solved in a you know a single day carved out of the sprint. That's when we have to say, okay, you know what this this is going to be a bigger project than you know something we can pick off in a day. Which means that we need to be able to prioritize it against the other work that we're going to do in the sprint. And so then we have to do a little bit of extra work of articulating what is the benefit of doing this technical work so that we have some way to say, okay, yeah, if we do this technical work, it's going to help us go this much faster. And actually, that is more valuable than this user-facing feature. Nice. I have like a hypothetical scenario that I think uh, a number of developers that are getting a new job might be facing. So let's imagine there's someone listening that recently got a new job and they're finding themselves on a team that has a handful of other developers and maybe a couple of them have been there since maybe day one, you know, and they've been there for, let's say, a month or so. And they haven't really formed a strong relationship yet with their peers. And as they're starting to get more acclimated with the code base, they're seeing that there's a lot of areas that they and problems that seem like technical debt. And, you know, they've checked, you know, get blame and they're not seeing that these things have been addressed or touched in a really long time. Since they don't haven't really fostered that level of connecting with their other their peers yet and are a little worried about like, oh, this was written by so-and-so five years ago. I'm not sure yet if I should start raising this as a concern or should I just go ahead and kind of just bite my tongue for now, but they want to make the situation better, but aren't really sure how to, how their peers are going to receive feedback yet, because maybe they just don't feel like that equal trust there because they haven't seen it demonstrated so far yet in in that team. What advice might you offer them on how to start navigating that? I think I would start with trying to understand how, how that technical debt was created in the first place, because very few people sit down at their computer and say, I'm going to write some tech debt today. Before you get to the point of giving feedback, you first need to understand kind of what is the context in which this code was created? How has that context evolved over time? You basically, you want to understand the the life story of the technical debt in a way. What are some strategies to go about figuring that out as as a, maybe as a new person? I, I think just asking innocent questions, coming from a place of genuine curiosity, not you know, you don't want to come to somebody and say, hey, this thing is awful. How did it get that way? You want to start maybe by saying, hey, I'm, I'm looking at this area of the code base and I'm, I'm trying to make sense of it. Can you, older developer, uh, walk me through how, how this code got created and, and what was being considered at the time that it was written? I think you're right. The being curious and, and genuinely being curious is, a, is an effective way to do that. And 
I think depending on how you phrase questions to people, you can trigger people getting defensive when they don't really probably even mean to be defensive. But more often than not, you'll hear developers maybe respond and be like, actually, this is kind of a mess. I wish I've been meaning to get back and clean this up at some point. And that could be a good like, well, how can I help maybe do that at some point? Or maybe we can get that you know on the roadmap at some point, but you can start fostering that kind of connection there. So I want to kind of wrap up things a little bit. Uh, a couple of quick last questions for you. So what non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry? Uh, it's a book called Nonviolent Communication. And it's a psychology book that mainly focuses on helping people figure out how to express themselves and also help the people they're communicating with express themselves. You know, kind of going back to what we were just talking about with, you know, asking uh, an engineer about some code they'd written. Um, Depending on how you frame that question, you may be like asking about the same tangible thing, but depending on how you frame it, that person is going to hear very different things. And so this book, Nonviolent Communication, is really about how do you take out the unintentional barbs and, and rough edges of what you're saying so that the person you're talking to can actually hear it. I've not read the book, but I've, I've taken a couple of uh, like short little workshops related to nonviolent communication. And for those listening, maybe we could provide a quick little example of that. I think I'd be curious about, let's say there's a scenario where a newer person on your team is submitting a pull request and maybe they're being a little short or terse in their responses or maybe disagreeing with how when you, you know, maybe you provided some feedback on the pull request and they're being kind of uh, argumentative in a way. And how might you phrase a, a follow-up to something if they're, they're like, well, I disagree with you or something, or if it's becoming a pattern of that? Well, I, I think to start, I'd, I'd probably try to find a, a different communication medium than the, the pull request itself. You know, so if we were if we were working in the same office, I'd I'd go face to face is always best. If we were remote, I'd I'd try to do a video chat or something, and I would explain to them start with the observation of of what I have seen happening in our interaction, and then follow that up with how it's made me feel. You know, maybe I'll say you know the terseness of your communication makes you think that I'm annoying you by bringing these things up. And I would just kind of try to keep the conversation rooted in facts, observations, and feelings that I had. And I, I would try really hard to avoid projecting any sort of like judgment or, you know, I wouldn't say, oh, you're, you're being mean to me or you're wrong about this technical thing. And I, w- I would try to get them to explain to me how, how they feel during this interaction. Is it safe to assume that Squarespace is hiring? Yes, uh, like like many tech companies, we are hiring. Uh, Squarespace has engineering offices in New York City, Portland, Oregon, and Dublin, Ireland, and uh, we're hiring at all of them. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? My website at johnthornton.com uh, is the best place to follow me. And also, uh, if any folks who are going to the Lead Developer Conference in New York City this April, I'll be speaking about good technical debt that conference also. Oh, excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, John. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Robbie.